Aguilar, Wallace to his left, and he's on his way. 10, 9, 5, 3, cut down! Wonderful try! We have a mole, Jim. Digs like a demented mole there. He just bust through the defence. Just watch this. Spillane gathers beautifully. In go the Irish forwards. This is Lenahan. Bursting into the 22. Back to Bradley. Back to Kiernan. The drop of goal is over. Michael Kiernan has done it. Good evening and welcome to the Molecast. Good evening. Good evening. Thank God there's a World Cup on, so there's something to actually talk about. <laughs> Let's start with Ireland's selections. Uh, we've just seen the se- selection for the Tonga team, Tonga match, and uh, obviously we know who was selected against Romania and saw that game. Both really, really strong teams. I thought, I thought it was hinted quite far in advance that Farrell would go strong against Romania, whereas you thought the opposite. I thought they would be more of a um, more of a rotation. Still a strong team, but maybe um, Baird or Casey or someone like that starting. But it's really close to being the first choice team. You'd say maybe Kelleher is playing ahead of Herring because he needs a game. But really, really strong team. What do you think the thinking behind it is? Uh, well, I, I think that I was I was at the game in Bordeaux and. I was really happy we ran up such a big score. But when I watched it again on the night I came back, so Tuesday night, uh, I was sort of, I remember feeling a little bit irritated at the amount of knock-ons or passes, overrun passes or drop passes in the first half uh, and then sort of carried away through euphoria of the second half. When I watched it again, I was like, oh, yeah, we, we did drop a good few passes. And we dropped a few passes in the second half as well. So... Those, while well, we scored 82 points, and I don't want to sound like, oh, you know, only 82 points, uh, you know, and there's still a lot of work to do. There is a bit of work to do there, a bit more sharpening of the blade. And in order for these players to do that, uh, it's a case of playing together rather than uh, rather than trying to sort it all out on the, uh, on the pitch. Because the pitch doesn't, the training sessions don't, it's not an 80-minute match. So... The as I was saying to you earlier today, like the downside, the difficulty with the World Cup is that it's at the end of the Southern Hemisphere season, so they pick up wear and tear injuries, but they have a lot of time under tension together. And on the other hand, it's at the start of the Northern Hemisphere season, so not you know you would imagine much fresher, but very little competitive rugby played together. Um, they don't really equally are out as you see from the history of the Rugby World Cup winners. Like it's almost, you know, there's only been one sort of, or Northern Hemisphere team who won the tournament. So you would say that the time together, now I, I, for a lot of that, Southern Hemisphere teams are just better, but I would say that the time together is very important. So I think that's, uh, that Farrell is um, putting his weights on that side of the balance and saying these guys need to play together. Uh, they'll play, they had a week, a weekend off, and now it was a traveling weekend, but only to France. It's completely manageable. Um, before, so Samoa, then weekend off. Uh, Romania, Tonga, South Africa, weekend off, Scotland. So three matches in five weekends is really a viable way that you're 
you know, you, you can play 60 or 80 minutes in a row for, for three weekends. So I think that's the, that's why he's chosen. I didn't expect him to go with that strong a team. I thought that we'd be stronger probably against Samoa, uh, give the, the third choice and second choice players the game against Romania and then strong, strong, strong for the next three games. But it's probably he's going to pick his strongest team or very close to his strongest team for for every game in the group stage and all the way through the World Cup. I was very surprised. I thought when the team that played against Samoa was going to be a dress rehearsal for the, the match against Tonga and he'd give himself as strong a bench as possible uh, against Tonga. So, you know, should it be required... They could they could change the game and they could kick more and you know just just I guess rely on the fellas that were going to come off the bench to make good decisions and and make the impact. Um, as it is, I'm very surprised with the teams that he's picked. Sort of from the point of view of the vibe in the camp of guys going to the World Cup, like Stuart McCluskey and Jimmy O'Brien haven't been included in any of the match day 23s and at this stage it's kind of difficult to see where they fit in like after the Tonga match um, so they're going to the World Cup they're not going to be involved at all Jack Conan and, and Dan Sheehan haven't been involved it's, it's far easier to see them both slotting in um, once they're recovered from injury so you'd have to assume that he, he really wants to pick them seeing as he brought them across injured and like you don't know how that's going to work out and then there's other guys who are sort of on the bench and like it's it's very difficult for them to make a case because they're they're just they're going to be stealing minutes here or there and you, like the match is going to be at a different stage so like Rossburn and Crowley it's it's still not clear who the second choice is behind Sexton and you know you, I think you can, it's going to be Crowley I think it's going to be Crowley as well but like it's 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 not clear and it's mm. not it's not clear like how either mm. Rossburn or Crowley is going to make that dramatic case for it and like you know do you want them to make a dramatic case for it? not really. you don't want them to make a dramatic case you want it all to be plain sailing um so i guess it just surprised me for um what it's worth but like farrell's got so much credit in the bank that he can do this and given the benefit of the doubt i contend that if you're like there's the case making was all to be done before this World Cup. And that people like McCluskey and uh, Jimmy O'Brien are in case of when things go wrong, not to be like not to be given minutes over a player who's playing better than them in their position. Like Sure McCluskey is a one position player who's playing behind the guy who's probably in the best form in the whole squad. Oh, I thought Bundy was the top Bundy was the best player of anybody of the entire opening weekend. Yeah, I guess I guess that's fair enough. And I wouldn't extend probably the logic that applies to Crowley and Ross Byrne to every position in the squad. Um, so that that was really the one that I was concentrating on. And certainly like he's gonna have a hierarchy of fellas he's gonna pick. So it's not it's not the World Cup's place to give somebody a chance to stake their claim. Like the, I mean, if anything, the training is is going to allow you to do that. Um, I, I'm I'm just kind of surprised that he picked as strong a team as he did against Romania and then backed it up against Tonga. I was still surprised, despite my uh, protestations there. 
I think maybe part of it is the fact that the the lie of the game. So tonight, France have shuffled the deck entirely against Uruguay. And if Ireland had maybe started against Tonga, you might say they'd start really strong and then give everyone a go. But as because the it's the steps are all the way up, and maybe the best place to rest people is in the first game. But he felt he wanted to get everyone into the tournament and get going. Yeah, because he only, yeah, you know, because this is, uh, sorry, this is almost going backwards rather than forwards, but like, uh, we we initially only had two uh, warm-up games announced. Like the Samoan game was announced much later than the other two. I know the other two games were at home, but the Samoan game was uh, was announced during the summer. So he was like, we, for the longest time, looked like we'd have two warm-up games. And you're going, wow, we went from having four warm-up games in, in the previous World Cup to like two and then we had a we had a third in and that third was unusual and that normally whichever way it's fallen my memory of it is that no actually didn't we play wales last when uh will addison played really well in cardiff and then got injured i think that was in Cardiff. anyway so um yeah i think i think he sort of was was thinking oh these guys have come back into camp. They've had time off. They haven't played rugby together. They've all got married. <laughs> Every single yeah. They all got married. Cut out the middleman. Marry each other. <laughs> um, and and I think that's like it's like he is trying to trying to build a team. Now the other thing I was uh, saying, stop me if I'm if I'm rambling on this, is that during the Six Nations, he played. I think thirty two players played for Ireland in a Grand Slam win in Six Nations. And players came in because of injury. The the key one that I remember, the key two I remember were Finney Bealham starting three games instead of Tyke Furlong, and uh, Conor Murray starting most games ahead uh, because Gibson Park was injured. So there are certain guys who we got used to as Irish fans of going, oh, this guy is like, he's a Grand Slam winner, you know, and a Grand Slam starter. Uh, so there are guys who are very close to being. Uh, who you don't, who are much closer than I had thought before the Grand Slam of being like first choice. Uh, Connor Murray completely, I wouldn't say got back to his best, but such a huge uptick in form this season compared to like quite a long period of of below par Connor Murray or worse than like quite a, a long way worse than his best Connor Murray because at his best he was the best scrum half in the world, like one of the top two. Um, and you know he's very good again this season. Finley Beatham hit a very high standard starting against the South Africans and then at the first three games of the the uh, Six Nations, the first two games of the Six Nations. Um, so those guys are really in contention. And then there's other guys who, as the the guys I you mentioned, like I, I almost thought that McCluskey was certain to be selected in this game. Uh, but McCluskey, Jimmy O'Brien, like Jerry Lockman got on the pitch against against uh Romania I like personally thinking personally speaking I think that's probably going to be his only game time in this um guys who are further off than that uh but the way that Farrell used his squad during the Six Nations I will you just check the Italy selection for me in the Six Nations and so for his selection there Porter Kelleher, Bielham, Henderson, James Ryan, Doris van der Fleer, Conan Casey, Rossburn, Lowe, McCloskey, Aki, Hansen, Keenan. You know, so 
even for the game against Italy, I was thinking, oh, did he really massively rotate the squad? And he only rotated three or four players there. So Farrell is his girl, like, going, yeah, just, like, win today, win tomorrow. Play my best team all the time. When guys come in, when guys drop out, like, I do trust the, the guys I have in my squad uh, to come in and play a bit. But, like, mostly I'm just going to play my best players as often as I can. You need you need a squad because in rugby now you get injuries first of all which you always did but more frequently you get injured and secondly uh, concussion and the knock on effects of that how long that can keep you out for just under medicinal care um, and then suspension so guys will play uh, and they will have to slot into a team so like it looks like he's going to go with with close to his his best team. All the way through. And the other thing, sorry, is to mention is that that extra blank weekend, the bye week in the group stages is huge. It's a huge difference. It, it, for one thing, it makes the group stages, possibly we might look at this at the end, too spread out. Um, but I think it's very beneficial for the players. It, it gives the smaller teams uh, an opportunity of better spacing. Yeah. Absolutely. Not not ideal, but like you had situations where fourth and fifth choice had four matches between some games. I, I think four days. Four days. Four days. Sorry, four four days between matches. Rather, yeah. Um, in previous World Cups, like playing against inevitably teams that were better than them, but so, like in in some instances, teams that were better than everybody. Like anybody playing New Zealand with a a four or five day turnaround, who's already low down the food chain, is just on on hiding to nothing. So. That was the that was the driver to that, um, but I, yeah, it it changes the dynamic of the tournament for particularly if you've got a break in between yeah. like two year bigger matches. I think there's an element also in Farrell's selection that he's sort of like he's not kind of guarding against like catastrophe in a way. He's playing Andrew Porter. Andrew Porter could get injured. Andrew Porter could get injured getting out of bed. You know, it's much more unlikely than getting injured again playing against a bunch of tongues. But we, we've seen that. No, no, but you, you've seen that. And I often think about it. And as you say, it is much more likely to get injured in a match. But the Scottish hooker concussed himself slipping on the stairs in the hotel. He's going home. McAnally's going to be called in for him. So, George Turner. Um, the fellow who started. Or no, the fellow who came on. No, one of the other ones. Hang on. Let me see what the headline says about who it is. Um, but no, that's that's definitely yeah. Malcolm Marks just got injured in training and is out for the rest of the World Cup. Yeah, so I think that I, I also think there's all. I mean, this is again, it's very apocryphal, but it's something that gets said a lot in sport, and I, I th- tend to f- think it's true. Which is the if you don't play at full tilt, you're again more likely to pick up an injury as someone is sort of like. Yeah, I think there's enough anecdotal evidence for that to translate as data now. Fishy, I'm calling that eagle eyed cherry. Is the fella going home? Dale Cherry. D- uh, Dave Cherry, yeah. Dave Cherry. Uh, in terms of the performance, you mentioned Bundy uh, last week. He was a star. Uh, big Joe McCarthy. Big Mick McCarthy. He's a huge butt. And uh, I really enjoyed the second half. It, it, it was a classic thing of like they stopped making the last risky pass. They just r- went through another phase. And like obviously Romania were already torn apart by the time the last risky pass didn't go to hand. Yeah, the one thing um, 
there was the Romanians made several outstanding titles. Now, so you say when saying several, like I don't mean like seven. Whenever I say several, I sort of start thinking that's like seven. When we ran at them, we got knocked down a lot of time. Now there's there's incidences where we ran through tackles. Bundy, for example, could, nobody could get him down. You know, it took three Romanians most of the time. But there's a lot of incidences in the second half when you would think the Romanians were tiring, that we ran at them and we got chopped down. Like their tackling technique was good. So our tries were, for the most part, scored by beating them by using space better, which is really encouraging. Now, they gave us an awful lot more space than South Africa would or even Scotland would. Uh, But it was a very enjoyable second half. And um, even John McCarthy's try, like he, there was like two instances. He was, I think he was held up over the line, held up over the line once, certainly. Now he says he scored. I don't see any reason to disbelieve him on that one. And then there was the one where he was hit by Simonescu right on the corner flag, which was an outstanding tackle. Simonescu made a bunch of great tackles in that game. And I think he was very close to being held up in another one. But for his try, uh, the botched remaining line, Conor Murray fell it back to him. McCarthy pulls off a really good sidestep. It's, it was I couldn't see it from where I was. Like everyone else was in the way. I was on sort of right. I was more close enough to halfway, but like er, there was you know fifteen people between. So I was just like, oh, he must have bashed your man. When I looked back and when I saw the recording, I was like, oh, he just beat him with a step before speeding over with the. The, the huge rump <laughs> and um so like that was that was sort of noticeable to me you know the creation like they found out where you know they 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 made space and made tries out of that what did you think of the performance of Saturday? um my main concern was sexton getting injured at half time yeah and really having mixed feelings about it really feeling like Sorry for the country if Sexton got injured. Sorry for Sexton if Sexton got injured. Annoyed at Sexton for the lackadaisical approach he took to his pace towards the line, his crappy dive, and then getting in a snot with the Tongan afterwards. And he got really invited upon yourself. Like Romanian. Romanian. Well, he's from Tonga, isn't he? Yeah. Um, like John Klein is from Ireland. Um, getting snot. Like, it looked like he was playing at the Kinsale Sevens. Um, the way he was sort of tapping down the ball and then sort of the relief struck joy of him coming back out in the second half and, and playing in really commanding form and getting really close to the Irish points record which I'll be delighted if he gets um, so that was the injuries were the main thing and then I think the fact that it wasn't Bordeaux Redux um, against against Georgia I was at the Namibia match and the Georgia match and like it's the Georgia match was worse, right? Oh, so it's not a question of how, but like the Namibia match was awful. Um, and the Namibia match gets worse when you realize that it was just a prelude to the Georgia match. And like, and the two of them were just a prelude to the matches in Paris. The only redeeming feature about the match in Paris was the weather was nice for the Argentinian match and it was in the Parc de France, which is in a nice arrondissement. Yeah. So like at least the vibe, albeit um, early Celtic meltdown, was yeah, yeah we sank we sank the economy. Was you know it was there it was um at least it was a nice afternoon. Like the the match against France in that World oh, Cup was super f- grim. On a Friday night, crossing underneath that 
like ring road that goes around Paris, like everybody trying to get out of Paris, the weather would change. And Chris, you were, Chris White gave us fucking getting nothing. nothing, getting nothing no, off no, Chris White as the referee we, because if France had lost that, they're out of their own yeah. World Cup. And like we weren't any good, but we weren't getting anything from mm. him whatsoever. Like, I mean, so that was grim. So you had those three super grim matches, and like that's what World Cups in France mean, yeah. like just Ireland at their absolute nadir. And before that, Lons, which wasn't even fucking hosted by France. <laughs> so you're going like, this is, like the track record is absolutely awful. Um, yeah, so no injuries and like 80-something points. Um, great to win up a big score. It's great to win up a big score. And then after that, like the the, the the quality of the match, was it, you know, like was was it as tight as it could have been? I don't know. Um, thought Bundy played really well. But like the, the overriding thing is just that you get through it without anybody getting injured and you don't look absolutely laboured. Yeah. And One thing so, which was you couldn't, uh, I could, you can watch whatever you want when you're at the match. We, Tygburn was tired at the end after making a long bursting run on 83 minutes. Fucking fair enough. In 40 degrees of heat. And uh, nobody, nobody from the Irish side got cramp. Now there's two water breaks, but... Nobody was even stretching out a cramp at any stage. Um, given the heat of the day, the amount of, of water that, like, I when I came back at the end of that, like, I took off my, my, uh, my, my walnuts, Japan 2019 uh, polo, and that where I'd been carrying my backpack, just huge lines of, of salt down it. Like, I was sweating, just walking around, sweating. Absolute book. I suppose my main thing from that match was I found it disturbing how hot it was. Like for somebody who tends to reference times in a year or a decade or whatever in relation to sporting events, because I know what year they were on and I can remember certain things about it. Like I was just appalled by the heat wave and like the fact that it was 40 something degrees in Bordeaux in like in September. Yeah. Like that I remember going to France as, as kids you know, like in the 80s or something like that, and the temperature being like 34, 35, like, you're like oh my God, like 34, like that's, you'd be driving in that heat, like that, that's, that's intolerable. Mm. And, you know, like it's, it's, like it's, it's, uh, it's incredibly worrying, but, and, you know, similarly watching New Zealand play France on a Friday night and the, the sweat just dropping off everybody and you go like, this match is kicking off a quarter past nine in Paris, which in is in September. the north, in September. So, like I don't know, I don't really know where like where that leaves the next World Cup in four years' time in America, and like just how like, I don't know what sort of state the world and the is going to be in. World Cup after that in Saudi. Yeah, but like you know you don't know what sort of state the world is going to be in, or, or like you know look maybe maybe science addresses a lot of the issues, but like it's that was pretty the biggest thing was just like this. It's tough going for the players, yeah. but it's, like, you know it's just a rugby match. Like it's tough going for everyone. Yeah, you know? so that was the biggest thing for me. Heavy. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, but yeah. It looks like it's great and about like 14 degrees cooler, or maybe more, maybe maybe low 20s. I don't know. So, uh, we've, uh, do you have any trepidation about that, having seen how the Samoa game went? Well, I, I, I think it's a good opportunity to segue onto some of the rest of the World Cup. Um, I don't have as much. So, Lele Afano is picked at out half for Samoa ahead of Sapawanga. I don't think that means Christian Lele Afano is a better player than Sapawanga, but it is 
a sort of an enviable riches that that particular island nation has compared to what Tonga and Fiji have. So I had backed Fiji. I backed Fiji for for like the World Cup because I thought their odds, given that they beat England in Twickenham in the last match before the World Cup, given the, the caliber of their players, the standard of their players before months got injured, um, I couldn't get over the disparity in odds between England and Fiji, allowing for the fact that like England's World Cup pedigree is a lot better than Fiji's. And certainly given the standard that Wales displayed in the in the warm-ups, I thought like, Fiji are going to win this. So I was really disappointed with Fiji against Wales and really just with the lack of tactical variety that they displayed. They ran everything. And at the first few minutes, they scored 14 points. And I thought to myself, wow, like, you know, Wales are really going to be put up to it. And then, like, in the next five to ten minutes, you sort of go, Wales figured out that, one, Fiji weren't going to do anything but this, just run at them. So they just had to tackle them. They could defend in a certain way. And two, Wales were going to be fitted in Fiji because it's Warren Gatlin at a World Cup. But, like, Wales knew that they were fitted in Fiji. And then in the second half, Wales just put themselves into territory with kicks and score tries, put the Fijians under like territorial pressure, whereas Fiji played so much of the entire match in the Welsh half or in that sort of dead ball area of the middle of the pitch. Like that, that kind of, like it's hard to score. And I kind of felt even the way the Fijians had rebranded themselves as the flying Fijians, I was like, but like they are and they aren't. Like the, the Fijians do have great wingers and they do have guys who can really score tries. But that tends to be because like all of their team are really quick and or not really quick. All their quick all their team are are sort of big, solid guys who can ball handle and like the slightly quicker guys get to play in the wing. But like are they are they noticed to be quicker than Josh Adams or Reese Samet? Like over hundred meters? Dead. So Wales were fit. Wales were like up for it. Wales were really prepared to tackle. I thought if there was one moment that encapsulated the match it was Josh Adams making oh. that big hit and you just went to yourselves Fiji aren't going to out physical Wales at this stage um, and I thought the Fijian scrum half was so slow as the match progressed that they couldn't get any necessary pace in like I don't know if he got buried at the bottom of Rooks or if he just got stuck over on the other side but like I thought he was he should have been shepherd hooked like 15, 20 minutes before he was. There was at least a change in tempo when the subs come on and they, and they scored two more tries. But I just thought they didn't help themselves. And the difference between that display and Sapoanga in um, in Bayon, where Sapoanga just bombed Jimmy O'Brien and he gave the Samoans something to hit and he gave them something to chase. And like I can find the quote from Raj from last season, but he was talking about Crowley and he was talking about the importance as an out half of keeping the ball ahead of your pack and how much your pack appreciate an out half who keeps the ball ahead of him. And I just thought to myself, I'm sure the Fijians are all in on this, but like it it doesn't do you any good to be not keeping the ball ahead of your pack and then having your tight head knock it on again and again and again, you know? So I, I was really disappointed with the standard of Fijian coaching. I didn't think they helped themselves. I thought their, their try-scoring ability was definitely there, but the difference between them and a team that has Lele Afano and, or Sapoanga playing out half is big. And to be honest, I don't know who... I, the Tongan out half isn't a former All Black, put it that way. So while they have a load of pace set in the backs, I doubt they're going to put Ireland under the sort of pressure that Samoa put Ireland under. Yeah, that's a great point. I hadn't... I hadn't really considered it from that side of the things, but you're 
You're right. Like my my feelings on the game were totally dictated by the f- two first half tries by Nia Salevu and, and Rodrada. And just thinking, I, my feelings were that if if Fiji can get the ball to twelve and thirteen, they don't need overlaps. They just need a one on one. These guys are going to break the game line. In the second half, I felt that they kept the ball for too long in their pack, trying to bash over, and it was frustrating because. I don't really want to shit on referees, but I was in conversation or WhatsApping with one of my uh, one of my mates in Exeter, and he he was he was actually going spare with the ref. He's an, an English guy, but he was saying that um, he couldn't believe how Carly would penalise Wales within their five meter line. You know, a similar thing would happen. Just penalise them again, uh, like four four penalties. You know, within five meters of their line, including a very there's one thing actually. Maybe it, I I was obviously in in France and uh, watching French TV, so I couldn't pick up any of the nuances. Like they talk over referees giving comments, just like every other commentator does. So there was a there was a, a Fijian scrum, a five meter scrum, which was marching forward, and instead of playing advantage, uh, Carly called a stop to it and gave Fiji a penalty. So. I suspected that Fiji must have done something illegal in that scrum after they'd moved forward. Like maybe, maybe somebody had collapsed it or something, but I couldn't, I didn't see a replay of it. There's very few replays on it. Very few replays. And uh, it just seemed to me like that is intransigent decision. Like that, that scrum was moving forward as the cliche goes at a rate of knots. It was certainly moving forward very solidly and he just stopped and then gave them a penalty again. So I, I thought that I couldn't understand that call and it felt unfair to me. I guess that's... So there's a few things that really struck me about the first weekend and, and two of them in particular. So I'll start with the the TVs and the lack of replays. And I they must have made a decision that we don't want the telly ref to have the same impact. Like We're going to trust the referees. We're going to give the referees an opportunity because having brought in the bunker... The bunker is there to protect world rugby against future concussion cases, mm-hmm. right? So the bunker is there that if somebody makes a headshot, you stick them on yellow and then you get the opportunity to do we give them a red card. And rather than breaking up the entire match for like five or six minutes trying to get this absolutely right. Mini court cases. <laughs> yeah, mini court cases. You just, you yellow card the guy and you let the five or six minutes elapse in the bunker and that's to protect world rugby, right? Because rugby has that existential crisis that we've talked about. But in that theme, it's also, and like I've given out about the teleref. You just go, we don't want every single decision. So like you've they, they've taken away that authority from the referee. So the referee is sort of being emasculated in terms of being the ultimate arbiter of a yellow and a red. And they've gone to the to the refs, look, Give that to the telly ref. Yeah. Which I'm okay with. They also have the game, like the game is is punished by all the telly ref, like it's spoiled by the telly ref decisions and the amount of analysis. And the ref like is in, like almost inevitably going to be wrong. Mm. Um, So they've just made the decision, it seems to me, that they're going to show no replays. They're not going to give the opportunity for stuff to be second guessed. And they're not going to give, put the referees under pressure by showing all this stuff again. And like, the most obvious one in the first weekend was like the pass to Talea was definitely forward. I don't know like how Piper did not see that it was forward because the pass 
like, first of all, the guy who was passing it was not going that quickly, right? So you can't say the velocity of how fast he was running. And he's about seven meters away from the 22. And Talea catches it about two meters away from the 22. And you're there going, well, like, that's what the line is there for. That's why the lines are cutting. It's not why they're cutting the grass. But it's certainly one of the marks uses help. I don't know how Piper missed that. I don't know how the touch judge did not see that as forward. But so be it. And I was kind of going, do you know something? I'm not French. I'm not New Zealand. So it doesn't impact Ireland. But I don't, like, I would rather have this where it's just referee ineptitude is kind of what, and you just let the game go on, you go, he's the ultimate arbiter of the truth. Whether it was forward or not really is irrelevant. It's what the referee tells you. So it calls to mind something that happened in football. For me, the first season under VAR, uh, in the Premier League in particular, they would show their workings essentially when they were doing the, yes. the offside and they draw the lines and they would literally show the guy with his like laser pen picking the point that he considered to be the furthest point furthest forward point of a player that could score a goal so typically that would include the shoulder or the armpit or something that would be the line they draw you couldn't score with your arms so you could score with your head if that was further forward <clears throat> and everyone was just like the fucking what are they fucking doing they're fucking picking the wrong thing and then they just went in the Champions League yeah he's offside here's the line and everyone was like fuck's sake he's offside and just like don't show your workings because like people will go fucking crazy. So you totally remove transparency and it's like quite totalitarian. Those be like, this is just the way things are. You won't be able to see the replays of, our, of the games. You won't be like the coverage is arguably worse for it, yeah. but the, maybe the, the game is better for it. You know what they say? Everything in moderation, including democracy. <laughs> <laughs> um, while we're talking about the totalitarian world rugby and dictatorship, <laughs> what I'd like to stick the boot into is one, they're terrible highlights packages like the laziest editing, not it's just like, like they got someone who doesn't know anything about rugby and just like cut out the bit when the score goes up and they cut 15 seconds before that and 15 seconds after it and stick them all together as quickly as possible. Secondly, the team announcement sheets where they can't fit the names in the same font size because they put two, they, like as if they didn't consider the fact that when they made these templates for announcing the teams, they'd have to fit the players' names on it. Like, please. Yeah, and also, also running out of water at fucking stadiums and having massive. What is it with the French? Also, children's anthems. <laughs> and the other haunting, thing is like haunting children's rhymes. Now. <laughs> Cap Cap Gemini. So Cap Gemini were big sponsors of Beeritz. They possibly still are. No grinder now. But it's grinder now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but they've they've done themselves an an incredible disservice with the uh, graphics that like flash up the time or the name of the players. You yeah. can't, I can't read these things. Yeah, crap Gemini. <laughs> like, well, the writing's I mean, too small and what, the font what? is the wrong color. And they're going like, this just reflects really poorly on the people <laughs> whose name is underneath it. Oh, you cap Gemini. Never get cap Gemini to do anything because it'll just be ineffectual and it won't work. So there you go. There's your, there's your brand then lads. Right. Well done. So, and then the other thing that struck me is cup match rugby. Oh yeah. C-M-R. So... South Africa, 18-3, just play the entire match. In France did it first. France, France did it first. first. They were like, first penalty, they got points. And they conceded a try up first. So, you know, there's maybe the first one, you're like, I'll just get something on the, on the board. And then another, just like three, six, nine, three. And it's like, it's funny, like everyone spends the entire time in between the World Cup practicing to do something they're not going to do in the World Cup. <laughs> Like play flowing rugby, and then England. Like let's like I want to skip to the England bit. Oh, skip to England. Yeah, because yeah. it's like that's where I was going with this. 
like I think there's something signif- just read out what you text oh, me yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> you I think there's <laughs> something psychologically significant about a drop goal that's more damaging than a penalty a penalty is like oh we did some bold okay they only took three it was kickable like rarely they take a kick from a really hard place and get it you know? whereas the, the three from a, a drop goal feels like fuck we had them stymied we had them kept out mm. and like the Argentinians would be like these lads will never fucking score a try <laughs> <laughs> and then you have these like three of the best drop goals I've ever seen kicked this, particularly the one from the, the halfway line you know what they, like they weren't even not, didn't have even that much momentum there were such beautiful connections and that really destroys a team it's like they feel like free points or something I always think of the drop goals that um, well if I say Dorth was it Dorth kicked the drop goals against or was it La Maison kicked the drop goals in the 1999 La semi-final and like after half time, they totally turned the tide. They have such a weird psychological effect. They always did when we played Joan Lomu as well. There was such the rubbing and the rubbing the nose in the dirt as well when you took a drop goal against someone. Well, if I say drop goals in World Cup, Johnny DeBeer. Johnny DeBeer. Charles Stronsky. Well, yeah. Well, I mean Johnny John, Wilkinson. Johnny Wilkinson. <laughs> but that's it, like Johnny Wilkinson, Stephen Larkham, Joel Stransky. Zinzan Brook. Zinzan Brook. But the name that comes to mind first and foremost. Johnny DeBerry. Yeah. Let me just, so, so we'll talk about England. I thought England spent, like I said, the thing that you practice all the time in between World Cups, England want to be the most liked team with their beautiful playmaker. And I'm not, I'm not sticking the boot at the Marcus Smith. He's obviously a really good player, but he doesn't fit in the England team, especially this dysfunctional one. It's the same before with Danny Cipriani. And I always remember, even though, don't really remember at the time. I remember it sort of being talked about afterwards, the 1991 World Cup, where the English were essentially goaded into playing a more open style of rugby. By Campo. Against an Australian team who probably couldn't match their pack in the 1991 World Cup final. Maybe they could if they're a very good pack as well. Um, I'm going to come back to that in a second as well. So basically they want to be loved, but they love it when they're hated. So like... Admittedly, I was reading like the Daily Mail match report, it, but they were just going like, this is one of our proudest bloody days against <laughs> man. And it's like, they beat like a war enemy by playing crap rugby and kicking their points. And they fucking love it. Why don't they play like this all the time? Why don't they play as the Northern Hemisphere of South Africa? Like, what what is it about them that they want to play this like, Oh, we want to be like France. You're not France. And they outnumbered the Argentinians in the ground by a huge amount. And yeah, you, you just, across. You ju- but you just kind of remember like how how many um, like English fans love traveling to events. They love going to France. They love man. going to the <laughs> south <laughs> of France. And you're just there going, and it's really close. So like it's like it's a perfect confluence of events. But you're thinking to yourself, holy shit, like England get it into any knockout match. It's going to be impossible to get over there. Like, it's just going to be a flood. I remember a column going to the World Cup in Australia in 2003, and as he was leaving, the English were coming down. So I think he, he stayed there till the quarterfinals, and then he just said, like, for the quarters, there was loads of English around, but then, like, for the semis, they were in their droves mm. in Sydney Airport. And he, he says, like, you can only imagine it got worse in the final. That, like, you know, it was... The, the last rugby fans in England were coming over yeah. and everyone else was just deciding to stay. So I like I completely wrote off England. I thought that they so could lose right. three of their pool matches and now I'm sort of looking at it going, ah, Goody's right, they'd be in the semis. Yeah, and I was saying to you as well with 
like when George Ford has been there at half, England won the 2016 Six Nations, 2017 Six Nations, 2020 Six Nations. They also won the 2020 Autumn Nations Cup when he played in the... I think he played... Farrell played at least one of those games of 10. But like Ford has been England's best at half. And even during the 2019 Six Nations, which they didn't win, they went with Farrell then. During the World Cup, he switched back to having Ford at 10 and Farrell at 12. And that was the team that played quarterfinal, semifinal, final. So Ford is their best 10. And he's been hugely underrated. The The reason I, I, I looked this up, like there's only one player who's won more. There's only one out half who's won more Six Nations than George Ford. And it's Johnny Sexton. Like George Ford has won more Six Nations than Johnny Wilkinson did as an out half. Um, Robert Kitson in The Guardian had an interview with there's been two articles about, one an article about Cipriani by Kitson, one an interview with Cipriani by Donald McRae, who's a great interviewer. Uh, that was that was today. The Kitson one is maybe a week ago, uh, maybe slightly longer than that. But Cipriani has played, he's always been, he's always been in the media, but this time he's used the media because his book has come out at a fucking brilliant time. You know, it came out just when English rugby was in, like, real nadir. And he was getting his quotes in against on Twitter against uh, Eddie Jones. And now the book has come out and English rugby is like, is, is you know, Phoenix from the flames. But it's, but people are still interested in, in Cipriani's uh, uh, sort of comments mostly. Um, and the, he was, he says in his interview with Don McRae that he's not a maverick. He was a decision maker going, Make a fucking bad decision maker. Look at your career, buddy. You know, five starts for England with a man of his, you know, the the talents that he was born with, that he, um, that you know, that are essentially that are a result of, uh, I wouldn't say genetic lottery, but you're if you're a naturally talented player, your your talents belong to your parents. You know, it's like having blue eyes because your parents are both blue eyes or being tall because your parents are both tall. Like you had nothing to fucking do with it. It's not your accomplishment. So your accomplishments are what you do with the talents that that you have naturally. So Cipriani just like fucking didn't do, like he had the potential to be, like if you stick Owen Farrell's mindset into Danny Cipriani's head, you've got a 120 cap, you know, English out half. Um, and... But as you said there, like Cipriani, even even like George Ford has been so ignored by people, so undervalued. Apart from uh, Squid Rugby, funnily enough, Squid Rugby's always been George Ford is great. George Ford is great, and George Ford's weakness was that like he was a poor tackler, and England had to hide him as a as a you know they'd move him out to the left wing or the right wing or whoever it was. They they had sort of recognised that their opposition backline had most difficulty passing to whichever side. But in terms of, you know, really good mindset, really good reader of the game, good kicker of the ball. And like he was seen as sort of the slightly weenier Owen Farrell, but like the, the, like the best, the, the, the best English axis is nine forward, sorry, 10 forward, 12 Farrell, 13 to a laggy. And they'll go back. They should go back to that. And, you know, they're going to be a difficult team to beat. Billy's back in now for this game. Courtney Laws is very good. Toe Jay. Like, 
they still have a good team. Like they should they should have had a really good team for this World Cup. Like they lost their way, but you know, they found their proper way. Bigger boys came. What I wanted to uh, say about the 1991 World Cup is that in the uh, interregnum between Australia versus Georgia and England versus Australia, I watched the first half of Ireland versus Australia from 1991. Which you were at. It was. The game, Super game. The game bears absolutely no resemblance to the sport that's been played. What's, like, there, I would say there was a thousand scrums in this yeah. first half. And like just kicking the ball, just kicking the ball away from fucking, yeah. get it away from us. That get, was definitely rugby football union back then. Oh, and Ralph Keyes looked just like a, an animal of an accountant. <laughs> <laughs> like top points scored in the tournament. He did sixty three or sixty six. It was a lot of points. Um, just it was mind blowing watching it, and it, it brought when I complain about stuff like uh, putting numbers or putting putting names on the back of jerseys or you complain about stuff like not lining up the uh people to sit in the right place in a in a team group, photograph, yeah. photograph. rugby rugby's traditions and i'm not being like oh rugby value better than other sports i'm talking about these traditions of like wearing stripy jerseys and pulling your socks up to your knees and all that kind of harmless stuff harmless just like paraphernalia that goes with the sport should be preserved because the sport bears absolutely no resemblance <laughs> to what it, what it was 10 years ago, certainly not 30 years ago, 32 years ago in 1991. It is nothing like it. Yeah. I, I saw clips from 2019, South Africa getting beaten by Japan. Peter Stafford 2015. 15, sorry. So two World Cups, yeah, two World Cups ago. Peter Stafford Toy, like, he was playing then, wasn't he? Yeah. Uh, he puts in a, well, some big South African, blonde South African, puts in... Like what would instantaneously be like, you'd be fucking be have a jury out in the side of the pitch from, like a seatbelt tackle that hits up into the head just as Japan the start of the move that Japan scored their winning try, and you're going like, oh yeah, that was just like, oh yeah, sure he hit him on the shoulder first, then he hit him in the head. Fine, <laughs> that was what it was. Like, exactly, that and it's like ago. that's eight years ago, and it's like so the the game is like for all the the transformation, even something like four years ago, people were like. Well, geez, there's a lot of kicking these days. And everyone's like, yeah, ooh, kick tennis. It's cool. <laughs> Emil Antimac made it fucking cool somehow. Uh, so, I don't know. It, it's it's strange how much it transforms every four years. The game looks quite different, whereas you, by comparison, like every four years, the Euros or the World Cup in soccer. Yeah, well, they don't change the laws in soccer. Generally, they hardly yeah. change them at all. The exactly. rules are I think I just think, I just thought it was interesting just to. It, it certainly, I certainly agree with you. So I, I'm a hundred percent, I absolutely back you about the harmless traditions, which people, which I, I'm not going to speak for people, which I like about rugby, which completely should be maintained. But I, on the other hand, there are certain things which I would like to change in rugby, and I'm just going to say this: uh, my annual season things for blockdowns to be more rewarded, especially blockdowns that go dead, mm. should definitely be an attack in five meter scrum. Oh yeah. But again, and more drop goals, drop goals or free kicks. Well, you see, this is the funny thing. Blockdowns aren't rewarded because they rarely ever happen in rugby league. And that's where rugby union gets all its cool. All its from. best ideas. <laughs> He's got an old report. And that, the funny thing is like people probably like don't use drop goals because no one uses them in rugby league. One point. One point. <laughs> <laughs> one point. It's a magic point, of course. Uh, but yeah, just um, 
What a great weekend. Great opening weekend, I thought. Yeah, let's talk about, before we, we whisk on past it, the South Africa-Scottish game, which I thought was... Um, I have a question for you. Go ahead. Sorry, I was going to yeah, ramble. So, the game had a very, very def- defined pattern when Scotland had the ball. Um, South Africa would come up and just eat all the space, like a massive triangle of lads coming up in a dog, in like a dog leg and uh, Scotland just couldn't get the ball out to the wide players which is where they wanted to go um, like is it a case that Scotland were just too one dimensional is that the only way they can play were South Africa that defence that just, just that good all of those things all of those things in equal measure Gregor Townsend uh, I read this I can't remember where I read it you might remember he was saying that we want to play wide when the chips are down. We don't want to freeze. We 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 want to go to width. And you're going. This Gregor Townsend isn't like playing a double bluff game. He's it's not a mind games thing. But you're going, Jesus. You don't need to be that fucking obvious. Like if you're just going to tell teams what you're going to do, and then do it all the time, like they know what you're going to do. So that was one thing I thought the South African defense was as as usual in big matches fucking ferocious like that's south africa's best thing boy you know you can uh you can promote a line out or you can promote their scrum as being their best in my in my opinion their best thing is, is defense uh, oh yeah great heart it's a it's a it's a symptom of this or it's a i think eddie jones said that in his book he goes like they prefer when they don't have the ball yeah they love they love the hitting game but they also love the sticking together and digging out your mate game. No, it's the total war tracker mentality. Yeah. Like it's it's the boar mentality, and and no matter whether it's the English guys or the colour guys or the black guys who play, like that culture it underpins South African rugby. Yeah, of that war tracker mentality. War, exactly, and the the togetherness that they feel as us against the world. So they love a World Cup. It's us against the world. Um. So those things were huge to me. I felt that Duham and Van der I felt that Finn Russell played really well, by the way. He was easily Scotland's best player. Uh, I thought he was extremely brave in that game. He made great tackles. Uh, he made as many... They play everything through Finn Russell, which to you know, he's really, really good player. I, I have to say, Finn Russell, I'm sure he's... <laughs> Doesn't give a fuck what I think. But I, I thought like, you know, uh, a year and a half ago, you know, this fella's just a flake. You know, a boozer and a flake. And of so much more. Since the start of the season when he started kicking loads of goals, I think there's something has, which has changed in his mentality. Um, it's a strange thing to identify, but I was like, that's a, that's a big thing for him. He's now just like kicked, kicked like 19 out of his first 19 attempts for a racing. And, um, he he took on a load of responsibility. They don't, they don't play off nine at all. And you can say maybe that's because they don't have the loose forwards to get through a South African close-in defense. But Jesus, you have to... You can't just play Everton off 10 throughout the game. I know Ireland play a lot off 10. But we also... Gibson Park plays a fucking... Gibson Park is such a live wire so that things... When he starts making decisions, stuff automatically comes off nine. It, it's not just going, oh, I'm just going to go one out or one out and one in or do a drag like he makes breaks so russell got shaken we got hit a lot got back up from everything um 
but he did in the second half definitely he was so, sort of forced to play deeper because he wasn't getting options coming off. Like Duhan van der was stuck out in the left wing in, so they could try and hit a home run because he is an amazing runner at any of both. And if that guy had released the pass, Darcy, Darcy Graham, Graham, yeah. And he just, with one stride too long, the yeah. defensive just got round, pinned his arm and he yeah. couldn't get rid of it. But Duhan shouldn't, he's a problem for anyone. He's a problem for Peter Steffi Toy in the middle of the pitch, like as a runner. So don't rely on getting the ball out to Duhan in space. Just bring him in like Iron Jews, James Lowe, like a whole bunch of teams have used big wingers before. Use him as an inside threat, inside Russell or just beside Russell. So like they have Kinghorn who can either play, he's played so much rugby at 10 over the last two seasons. Plus in terms of, in terms of speed and space, do you remember his, his runaway try, I think against Italy at the end? Like that guy, if he's your last man, if he's your outside man, he's got pace. Like he can be your winger who can exploit the space. So they didn't show any variation there, which was to their downfall. I thought their centers were, because Russell's used his skip so often, I thought the centers, I, I haven't seen Tupelotu play a quieter game all season. He's been great. Hugh Jones has been, was the best outside center in the Six Nations and just did not get enough ball. The other thing with Scott, sorry, before I fucking go any further, Scottish replacement props got milled in the scrum and their line completely fell apart. So even when they got down, when they got penalties to get into the South African half and had a line out, how many did they lose in the South African half in the second half? Four? Yeah, I, I thought the the real problem, the, the Scots had two characteristics that has kind of bedeviled their game. Uh, one was tactical, one was psychological. I felt that too many players didn't threaten the the opposition line when they're on the ball like they're basically always going to go wide mm. and it, it 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 just allows the defense to drift because you sort of work out it's it's like Fiji you work out like what these guys are going to do fairly early on and they don't ask any other questions and then I felt that almost the worst thing that happened to them was they got the penalty from the scrum at the just end of the first half, half that they converted because they. They, they celebrated it like they won the match. And I know there's a trend and it's it's meant to be psychologically good for you. And the English guys were getting slagged about it of, um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, celebrating the small wins, you know, and it's meant to give you a lift the next time. But I kind of felt with Scotland that they saw that as the high point of the match and then they lost concentration thereafter. And you're just going, no, no, no. Like, you, like if you want to play at that standard, you have to do it for 80 minutes. Like you can't just have a peak and then think that that's it. And it just seemed to me that they thought that that was it. And like they were, they were what? They were 9-3 down at halftime having defended. 6-3. Yeah. 6-3? 6-3 at halftime having defended really well, having been under a lot of territorial pressure. And you think to yourself. And Lebok missing all the kicks. That's, that's a really, that's a really good result for them. But rather, uh, they they seem to take it as a victory and they couldn't pick themselves back to to apply the necessary concentration in the second half. And I don't know, it just seems to be an ongoing uh, Achilles heel of Scotland. Mm. Yeah, but it is. It is. Uh, Can you address it to the top <laughs> defence that comes Excuse up me. and cuts what? off your all your outside channels and, and you have to go deeper? Do you, I mean... I thought it was surprising that Scotland didn't think it over the top a little bit. Yeah, it's, it, so if, if somebody runs, if somebody runs that far off their defensive line, if they're if you're thirteen, like Jesse Creel, 
is making a 15-yard run uh, to get up and close down space, there's 15 yards of space behind him. So that's going to be covered by their sweeping fullback, but that's still, he's moved from somewhere. So you just, you get like the, what they call in the NFL, the all 22 film, and you're going, where are the spaces? This is how they defend. When he runs here, where's the space? Okay, the space is behind him, but Clemson or Willie LaRue, Willie LaRue was shit when he came on, by the way. All he did was make mistakes. Um, he's going to cover that space, but he's left a space there. So probably the, probably the scrum half goes back to fill Valencia's space. But like, Everyone is moving from somewhere. There's always, like, the pitch is, is smaller now than it used to be because players are bigger and quicker. But there's, there's space somewhere. So that's a big feature for analysts to go, is, like, identify where that space is, where that... You can't train two defensive systems for one World Cup. So they're going to defend like that. Another thing which is really interesting, some a South African guy on Twitter pointed out, is that the box actually move well back off the back foot so that they don't give away offside penalties. And they just give themselves a run-up. So when they're starting at rooks, when they're on the defensive side, when they're starting at rooks, they'll be further off the back foot probably than any other team that we saw the first weekend. Definitely than any other team we saw in the first weekend. But then they fucking work really hard to make that gap up. But that means that they're not giving away cheap penalties for being offside. Um, but they, you know, that's that's something which is... I, I haven't thought yet about how you could use that to your advantage. But you would say it, that does give you the potential for for gain uh, for getting getting gain line through pick and goals, for example. And then I think the other thing you do is you play it back inside from ten. So if they're like if they're thirteen and they're fifteen are sprinting up off the line and they're closing down ten to fifteen meters, and you've gone back inside, if you've got a quick rook, they have to make ten to fifteen meters back the other way to mm. get back onside. So. You're not attacking where they're working so hard to defend, but you're also mate, you're also setting a new offside line with with the next rook, which means that they have to get back on side. I'm also just going to suggest that maybe you go blind and break up the lineouts. Oh, well, <laughs> fairness, going blind is actually like it's you can't get line speed off on the blind side. There's no point in racing off the line if there's only fucking two of you. Racing off the line is like there's automatically going to be a dog leg. Yeah. Um, yeah, I thought that was a curious match. Fascinating as well because obviously we were so paying such close yeah. attention to both those teams. More so because we're in their group yeah. than if you were true neutral. If you were neutral, neutral. And we all know. Chaotic good. <laughs>